So, so our sermon this morning is entitled, Seeing Yourself Through the Gospel Lens. And before we get going, I just kind of want to explain what I mean by seeing yourself through the gospel lens. We've talked before, as we've been journeying through the book of Romans, that chapters 1 through 11 are sort of the theology portion of the book of Romans. And then when you hit chapter 12, you have this hinge, and the hinge is chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then from that point on through chapter 15, uh, you have a, uh, an application section where, where the Apostle Paul is taking every, all of, on the basis of everything that he has said up to that point, in chapter 12 he starts talking about how it is that Christians ought to live because all of this is true. And so I see, I see uh, that, that, that hinge point almost as a, as a, a lens where on one side we have this gospel truth, which might be like the sun, and then on the other side we have our lives. And this lens kind of helps to focus the light of God's truth onto into our lives and, and to show us what it looks like. And so, so seeing yourself through the gospel lens means seeing yourself in light of what God has accomplished through Jesus for your sake. Uh, it also means interpreting your abilities and your life experiences through the lens of what you've seen God doing in your life. And that's a little bit, a little bit more ambiguous. We'll have to flesh that out some. Um, we'll try to do that as we go along. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So he says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Your translation may say spiritual or may say rational. Uh, that word in the Greek, it really means the, what's appropriate for you as a creature created by God. In your creatureliness, this is what's appropriate for you to do. Uh, as an act of worship is to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. <coughs> And the other side of that is do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may demonstrate what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul's assumption when he writes this is that if everything that he has said so far is true, if you were lost in your sin, if you were dead and hell-bound and, and deserving of, of eternal punishment, if that's true, and if it's true that God loved you so much that he sent his son to be a substitution for your death, to die in your place, to pay the price of your sins so that you could be forgiven freely on the basis of turning to Christ in faith. If that's true, and if God's faithful to his promises as he says he is, and if he has a glorious hope in store for everyone that he has chosen and predestined and called according to his purpose... If all that's true, then the way that you live your daily life ought to change. Because Paul, what Paul believes is that the grace of God really changes lives. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card, but it is a force by the Holy Spirit that God gives as a gift that seals and indwells and empowers his people that your life will really be different. And if you claim to be a Christian but you see no change in your life, there's good reason to be concerned about your profession. That's, that's Paul's assumption. And so he says, 
do not be conformed to this world. Now, and to, to be gracious, when he says don't be conformed to this world, he's assuming that you will be tempted to be conformed to this world. He's assuming that you'll be pressured to be conformed to this world. But he says you've got to resist it. You've got to fight against it. And the way that you fight against it is being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And there are lots of, lots of scripture passages that might come to mind when you think about this renewing of mind. Like Colossians 3 where he says set your mind not on the things that are below but set your mind on things above where Christ is. As you focus your mind and your heart, we think about Jesus saying, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When What you value, what you invest in, where you put your focus, that's what's going to shape you. He says you need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may demonstrate what the will, is, will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So after, after Paul says this, the first thing that he addresses is the issue of thinking more highly of yourself. And he's, he's kind of hitting on, on humility, if we were going to put a broad, a broad word on it. And if you go through from chapter 12, from here through the rest of, uh, through Romans 15, it is interesting how humility is sort of a core thought in everything that he says. So in this passage, he's talking about humility within the body of Christ and how we relate to each other. And then he's going to talk about how do you have humility toward people who are persecuting, who people, people who might consider you their enemies. And then in chapter 13, he talks about how you might have humility toward the government um, and those in authority. And then chapters 14 and 15, he talks about how you should have humility with people who believe differently than you within the body of Christ, when you are on principles of conscience, when you have disagreements. How do you walk in humility? So this is that first section where his main uh, concern is, is within the body of Christ. So he says, for, I, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes or shares in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then verse 9 transitions to another section, but he says, let love be genuine. In Greek, it's literally unhypocritical love. Love that's not acting. Love that's not just pretend. This problem of, of pride, and as I've, as I've really, I've, I've been wrestling with this text because the, at the front of it he's saying, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. But I've really been just kind of wrestling with why. Why do we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to? And, I, and I'm, you know, and the only thing I can, the only conclusion that I can come to is that we, we have this desire to feel significant, and we have this desire to to be important. And 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 because we don't believe the things that Paul said in Romans one through eleven. We want we in our conformity to the world, we tend to establish that significance every place except at the cross of Jesus Christ. We scramble to find significance in anything and everything except the value that God has proclaimed from the cross that he says is freely ours. 
he, he's, you know, the, the death of Christ was, was not subjective. It was objective. It was a price paid to redeem sinners. And so if you wonder what your value is to God, you don't have to wonder. You can look to the cross and you see that it was the death of Christ. And this is a theme that I, I think we do a good job of, of talking about and emphasizing here, uh, especially in our uh, uh, communion times. I want to read a little story to you from a, a book by John Ortberg called The Life You've Always Wanted. It's probably my favorite book on spiritual disciplines. This is Ortberg writing. He says, Leon, Joseph, and Clyde all suffered from a Messiah complex. It was not just a touch of narcissism or a dash of grandiosity. They were three chronic psychiatric patients at a hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan, all diagnosed with psychotic delusional disorder, grandiose type. Each one maintained he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Each one believed he was the central figure around whom the world revolved, the three little messiahs. Their doctor, Milton Rokich, with little to lose, decided to try an experiment. He put the three men into one small group. For two years, the three delusional messiahs were assigned adjacent beds. They ate every meal together. They worked together at the same job, and they met daily for group discussions. Rokich wanted to see if rubbing up against uh, other would-be messiahs might diminish their delusion, a kind of messianic 12-step recovery program. <laughs> the experiment led to some interesting conversations. One of the men would claim, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm on a mission. I was sent here to save the earth. How do you know, Rokich would ask. God told me. And one of the other patients would counter, I never told you any such thing. <laughs> Ortberg writes, the bitter irony is the very delusion to which they clung so tenaciously is what cut them off from life. To stop being the Messiah sounded terrifying, but it would have been their salvation if only they could have tried. If Leon and Joseph and Clyde could have stopped competing to see who gets to be the Messiah, they could have become Leon and Joseph and Clyde. Pride has this way, this, this desperate desire for significance has this way of shrinking our world and imprisoning us into a world that is only big enough for me. And so if, if, and it keeps us from being the people that God intended us to be. And so what I want to argue this morning is that the only way that we can be free from this pride that is Believe me, it is, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but it's in our culture, and it is squeezing us and pressing us and demanding that we try to validate ourselves, that we try to establish our own value apart from Christ, and so we've got to resist it. And in the, in the moment that we can resist that temptation, God will set you free to be yourself. Amen. So, so the big idea in Romans 12, 3 through 8, I'm... Seeing yourself through the gospel lens, so we're looking at it through that, that, that window of Romans 12, 1 through 2. Seeing yourself through the gospel lens reveals the problem of human pride, and it also reveals the beauty of God's design, what God intended, and it reveals the measure of human worth. And so that's where we're headed. Those are the three things we'll see.
So first, looking through the, the gospel lens reveals the problem of human pride. And so in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly than he or she ought to think, but to think with sound judgment. So I've highlighted everyone among you because Paul, what's Paul assuming? That this is, yeah, this is, this is everybody's problem. This is something that we're all going to be tempted uh, to do. So it's a universal problem of pride. I love A.T. Robertson's quote here. He says, self-conceit is here treated as a species of insanity. The the word that's translated think more highly than you ought to think is, uh, in English, in Greek, it's literally like overthink, to think too much beyond what's necessary. And it's contrasted with sound judgment, which is another Greek word that means, uh, well, sound judgment, wise judgment. the, the noun that's associated with it is sophrosune. Uh, and in ancient Greek culture, sophrosune was one of the cardinal virtues of, of that day. It was if you, uh, if you had sophrosune, you were a wise man. You were self-controlled. You didn't, you didn't overdo it. You didn't underdo it. You were just, just right on. And so Paul, I think he's intentionally, uh, with speaking to his culture, he's intentionally using that word to show that, that the opposite of that, to think more highly of yourself, is, is to not, you're not thinking clearly. You're not thinking rightly about yourself. You're a little bit self-deluded. And there have been some people in history that if they could have pleaded temporary insanity after the fact, I think they would have. Uh, you think about Eve in the garden, Genesis 3-5. The devil's original temptation to her was, you will be like God. God doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to make decisions for yourself. He wants you to take your, take your cues from him. And, and Eve bought the lie. And she said, yeah, you know what? That's right. i got a pretty good head on my shoulders. I think I can make decisions for myself. I should go ahead and eat this and get knowledge of good and evil. But it was the thing that, that ruined her. Because God designed us to take our cues from him. He designed us to not be self-sufficient. He designed us to be dependent on him. And so don't you know that when Eve was standing with her husband outside the Garden of Eden to the east of Eden, don't you know that in that, more, in that moment, if, if she could have pled insanity to get off, that, that would have been, what was I thinking? In that moment, I thought I was making a good choice, but I must have been crazy, right? Have you ever had that moment? I have. I've had a bunch of them. When I did what I thought I thought was a good idea, and it turned out to ruin me. David and Saul, 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9. These uh, people are coming back after fighting the Philistines, and the ladies are singing a song about David. And they say, Saul has slain his thousands. Man, he's pretty tough. But David, David's our new hero. That guy's slain his tens of thousands. And Saul... Because of his pride, because of his insecurity, and his, he, he saw his significance in Israel going down the toilet, right? Because his significance was not grounded in his relationship with God. His significance, significance was grounded in his status as king. And so when he sees this threat coming, dude goes crazy, starts throwing spears at people, starts chasing David around through the desert for 15 years. 15 years? You gave your life to trying to kill somebody? Because they're that much of a threat to you? Is that 
Sound crazy to you? Sounds crazy to me. In our culture today, you know, when if you look up suggestions on writing your resume, you know, what do they how do they suggest that you write your resume? You got to sell yourself. You got to you got to market yourself to people. You got to brand yourself, if you will. In my day, selling yourself, we called it prostitution. Uh, and then the, when I've, I've been in interviews before where people have politely said, okay, now this is your chance to brag on yourself. i like, don't encourage me. I don't need anybody to tell me to brag on myself. It's not, it does not help me to brag on myself. And then, of course, we say when you're, when you're moving up, you say you're climbing the ladder. And what we mean by climbing the ladder is that your superiors have recognized that you have value for the company, that you're significant. And so we, we use these uh, terms to express significance. And so our culture, not only does it reinforce pride, but it rewards pride, yeah. right? I mean, you can look at our celebrity culture and see that. You can look at Facebook and see that. You can look at, uh, uh, well, on the other side of it, when's the last time you saw somebody get promoted for humility? When's the last time boss said, man, you know, you're – your work, work performance is kind of mediocre, but you are a humble guy. <laughs> We're going to move you right on up. I think you got what it takes. And then in the church, let's get a little closer to home. In the church, we see it with comparison. There's gossip and there's division. There's hallway conversations where we are comparing one person's gifts or maybe not even giftedness, maybe just their role, the part that they have. We compare and we talk about it. We're not sure that they ought to be in that role because I don't think somebody else might be able to do that better. And so there's gossip and there's division. And then on the other hand, there could be condescension, which leads to non-commitment. Somebody who says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a manager. I, work, I, I manage a budget of $2 million a year. I could run this church, and you want me to hand out bread and crackers or crackers and juice? You want me to where, – where there's this sense that, that, that serving in the church is beneath us because we have a skill set that is beyond what's necessary in the church. And so there's this tendency to want to – we don't want to do what we think anybody could do. The way that we get significance is by finding something that only I can do. And if only I can do it, then I'm, I've become essential personnel. Right? We all want to be essential personnel. But we're buying in to the lie of pride. And uh, as you'll see there, Romans 12, 2, we're conforming to this world when we do that. Because that, that's exactly, we just looked at what the world does, the way that the world pushes us and squeezes us. When we conform to those ways of thinking, we're, we're buying the lie. And we're going with the flow of culture. And we'll see, uh, actually, when we get uh, to the end here, I'm going to show you uh, an example where, where, G, where Jesus shows us exactly the opposite value system. So looking through the gospel lens shows us the problem of human pride, shows us that human pride is prevalent in our culture. It's been prevalent with us from the beginning. It's prevalent with us in the church oftentimes. You know, sometimes we think people, especially like as a new believer, if, if someone comes to Christ, they have this thought that there will come a time when I will conquer this sin and it will never tempt me anymore. But this is, this is 
Pride is such a fundamental sin. And I think really, like I said, we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I think if you, if you took any sin that someone struggles with, and if you peeled back the layers far enough, somewhere down there you'll find pride. It's so, it's so fundamental and basic to human nature, this desire to call our own shots, to govern ourselves. I got bad news. There will never be a time in your life when you will not struggle with pride. It will be something that you constantly have to be on guard against. You constantly have to keep in check. You have to constantly, Keith mentioned last week, I think, preaching the gospel to yourself. You, you've, got to, you've got to daily preach the gospel to yourself. You've got to daily remind yourself that your significance is found in what God has done on your behalf in Christ. And that no matter how much money you make, no matter how you climb up the corporate ladder, no matter what position or role you have in the church or in the government, you, your significance never increases in God's eyes. And, <laughs> and for that matter, you can, no matter how broke you are, uh, no, matter, no matter how you fall down the corporate ladder, your significance in God's eyes will never, ever be diminished. I mean, I mean have you thought about that like, Every time the stock market crashes, bankers start jumping out of buildings. Their significance is so enmeshed in their financial performance Mm. that they absolutely cannot cope with life Mm. when that significance is gone. Pride destroys lives. It shrinks your world. It destroys your relationships. It can destroy your life. And so our our significance has got to be rooted and grounded in what God has done. Let's talk about the beauty of God's design in the church. Paul specifically says that a person should not think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sound judgment, as God has given to each one a measure of faith. And then he says in in verses 4 and 5, he says that the church is, God's design in the church is that it is both a unified whole and it's diverse. So when the Bible talks about being in Christ, being united with Christ through faith, he's talking about an organic unity. So it's not uh, it's not uh, uh, transformers or something where they all you know the you know and they come together into a big robot or something, but you can just kind of like rip one off. Did anybody have transformers when you were a kid? All right, you remember how you put the you buy a lot of little transformers and you put them together and just had a little slot you just stick into his arm, stick into his arm, and then you got a big you got a big robot. Sorry, that's how it was in the old days. I don't know, I don't know how it is now, but but so anyway, so that's not an organic unity, right? They're just connected artificially. They can be disconnected. An organic connection is like the relationship that my head has to my body through my neck. Can you take away my head from my body? without it would i still be a whole person right so with the little transformer robots you can take them apart and you still got whole robot robots if you disconnect my arm from my body i'm not a whole person anymore if you disconnect my head from my body there's an organic relationship and if you dismember me too much or in the right place i'm dead right so that's organic unity when christ put the body together when we put faith in christ we are united with him organically we in the way that a branch is related to a vine it draws life from the vine and if you cut it off it dies because there's no life getting to it so it's an organic relationship well the bible teaches that not only did are we united with christ but he says that we're organically related to one another also 
spiritually. So he says uh, in verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to faith. And, and I won't read the whole list. But he says, so he says the church is a unity. Um, he says that we have one body even though we have many members. Even though we're different, there are a lot of us. We're one. In Ephesians 4, you may remember that he, he, uh, Paul gives a list of ones. He says there's one Lord, there's one faith. Well, there's, there's one Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's one, uh, there's one boss of the church. There's one leader of the church. And below, below, below Jesus Christ, the church is a pretty flat organization. We're, we're not, there's no ladder to climb in the church. There's no, um, because Jesus Christ is the head. So he's the one Lord. He's the one from whom we get our marching orders. And so from that one Lord, we have one mission, and that one mission is to make disciples. I, I fear that this is something that the American church has lost sight of. We, we really get caught up in weekly programming and events, and we, we can fool ourselves into thinking that that busy activity is what Jesus commanded us to do. But what Jesus commanded us to do is to make disciples. Yes. So, and, I, and I know that in a lot of churches, programs were originally created because there was some thought that it would help us to make disciples, that it would expedite the process. But I'm going to say something that, that may sting a little bit. It stings me. So if it stings you, it stings me. I think that the church has come to lean on programming and events because we can't get our people to do evangelism and discipleship. If we could get the church to share the gospel, and if we could get the church to, as people come to Christ, if we could get people to walk with a new believer and to teach them how to follow Christ, the vast majority of the programs and events that churches plan are unnecessary. They're a waste of money. They're a waste of time. And they make us feel busy. They make us feel pressure, right? Anyway, if we can mobilize a church community to be disciple-makers... We'd have a lot more time on our hands. And we would be actually accomplishing what Jesus wants us to be doing. So anyway, so we've got one Lord and we've got one mission. And, and we are to do that together. So, so the, we, we obey one Lord and we pursue one mission. Uh, I, don't, I don't another another thing that may not be good to say, but I'm going to say it. Uh, you know, parachurch organizations. There are a lot of parachurch church organizations, and the reason that they exist is because there are certain areas where the church is not reaching into. And there are a lot of reasons for that, so I don't, I don't want to be too hard on, on parachurch organizations. But I am just saying that, like, this is my point, is that if you, you may be passionate about something, right, and you, you want to go uh, feed the poor, Right, and that's something that God has put on your heart to do. Well, that is awesome, but that that is not the one mission that Jesus has given us to do, unless that 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 platform of feeding the street people, people who are who are homeless or whatnot, 
um, if that platform uh, provides an opportunity for sharing the gospel, then it can be useful. We obey Christ together as a unity. So he says there's an organic unity between the, the members of the church. So my point is that we fulfill our mission as a community. We don't fulfill our mission by each of us getting fired up about something that we go do on our own. Um, but it's something that we do together. Okay. Not only is the church a unity, but the church is diverse. Verses 4 through 6, again, he says, For just as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, so we who are many in Christ and individually parts of one another have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So he's just saying we're different. And he's saying that this is how God has made us. He's made us to be different. What Paul is pressing back against is that while we want to scramble to, to achieve our, to establish our significance within the body of Christ to be that essential part, he's saying that every part is essential. There's not one part of the body of Christ that, that is not essential to its functioning. This emphasizes, as God is allotted to each a measure of faith, having differing gifts according to the grace given to us. And even Paul, he, he's like giving this message to them, and he's saying, I'm doing what I'm doing by the grace given to me. That's the part that God has given me to do. And it's, but the part that Paul is uh, walking out, this writing this letter, exhorting the Romans, he's doing it for their good. This is not just Paul. And maybe this speaks better to what I was trying to say a few minutes ago. This is not like Paul's personal axe to grind that he's just decided that he needs to write letters to all these churches. But this is the part that God has given him to do for their good, and he's doing it in love for them, for the good of the church, um, to see the church walking out their their ministry, making disciples. Uh, Our function in the body is God's gift. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, I'm just going to turn there real quick. Verse 18 says, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Every, every person, whatever role they have, they, they have the gifts that they have, they have the life experiences they have, they have the abilities that they have, the skill set that they have, because that's where God has placed them. There's no reason for condescension in the body of Christ, because every, every role is essential. Still in 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 22, he says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. I like that translation. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. So there's no reason for condescension. There's no reason in in thinking that any role or any task is beneath any of us. If we have the capacity to do it, it's a job we can do. No reason for comparison. Um, so our significance is established at the cross. I've mentioned that several times. Um, Romans 8.32 said, He who did not spare his own son, how will he not freely with him give us all things? If the, the cross of Jesus Christ is God's promise to you that he will always do good to you because he hasn't held back that which was most precious to him. 
And then uh, 12 verse 9, sort of like I say, it's uh, Paul's crescendo. In, in, in the Greek, it's only a noun and an adjective. It's, there's not even a, a verb there. It's just unhypocritical love. I think there ought to be an exclamation point after it, and it's Paul's banner cry. Love without pretense, because if you're if you're using the church simply as a place to establish some, a feeling of significance, a feeling of being essential, you're loving with a hook. You're not loving to give. You're loving for yourself. I want us to look at this passage in John 13. Unhypocritical love. I love this passage, John 13. Jesus says the the chapter opens. It says that Jesus knew where he had come from. He knew that he had come from heaven, and he knew that he had completed the work that the Father had given him to do, and he knew that he was on his way back to heaven, and his what he did in that moment of knowing that was to set aside his robe and to gird himself with a towel and to get a basin of water and a, and a towel, and he goes and he sits before, kneels before his disciples to wash their feet. Anybody ever heard of a spiritual gift of washing feet? Huh? I never heard of that. I couldn't find that in any of Paul's gifts list. Is there any, do you think Jesus went to a vocational school for foot washing? And it qualified him for getting down? This task that Jesus did in, in his cultural context, it was a task that anybody could do. But it is a task that nobody would do. Because everybody felt too significant to do a task like this. There's actually a funny story in rabbinical literature where a, this rabbi's mother wanted to wash his feet. And he refused because it was demeaning for his mother to wash his feet. And so she took him to the rabbinical court and took him before the other rabbis and said, He won't let me wash his feet. And I think it would be an honor to wash his feet. And so that's actually the only other foot washing story that we have in antiquity. There's no foot washing story in antiquity of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. It did not happen. It was something that anybody could do, but nobody would do. What would it be like if City Church Garland became a place where anybody will do what nobody will do? What if, what if the heart of Jesus becomes the heart of City Church Garland? What if it becomes the, what we, we live and breathe is just to serve, just to, to do the things that maybe the insignificant tasks that everybody thinks are below them, but they just need to be done? And, uh, and, I, and, and I feel a little bit, when I say that, I feel a little bit like, I should say, excel still more. Because uh, when we had our fellowship meal a couple of weeks ago, I was, my heart was so encouraged at the way that people just, at, when it was over, man, people just jumped in and started cleaning up. I, I, was, I was supposed to be, like, organizing it, but I didn't have to organize anything. I didn't have to say anything. I just, I just carried tables and and. Everybody just jumped in and started working and doing it, and it was awesome. And that's the way it ought to be, where everybody just jumps in, we do it together. Um, yeah, so, so, that's, we, so excel still more. That's the culture that we want here, to more of that, where we are willing to lower ourselves to serve one another in ways that seem insignificant. But here's, here's my last point. You can't know 
how significant your service is because only God brings the fruit. You might be planting and you might be watering, but only God causes growth. So you, you can't really measure how significant, what impact your service is going to have. Uh, let's, let's pray and just ask God, God, what ways do you want to use me and use my gifts? What ways do you want me to serve to express love to those who are around me and the relationships around you and I? What would it look like for you to be a good steward of the gifts, the opportunities that God has given you in this life? song we could ever sing